Welcome to the Hockey Physiotherapy Podcast. This is episode seven. Uh, Thomas, what do you got for us today? Give us a little intro. Episode seven or episode eight. Either way, I'll carry on. And Fuck. we're talking. We're talking <laughs> about uh, shoulder stuff today, Ben. And we all know hockey is a collision sport. Players hit or collide with other athletes with a ton of force. This can transmit significant stress onto the shoulder and the upper limbs, and therefore these athletes are at higher risk of shoulder trauma. Shoulder instability has previously been studied in hockey players of all levels, but despite evidence on the frequency of general upper extremity injuries in hockey players, there's minimal literature discussing return to play and the impact of shoulder dislocations on performance. But we're not exactly doing that today, Ben. We are talking about bank cart repairs, and within hockey, the upper limb makes up nearly 30% of all injuries with shoulder injuries, comprising... Eight-ish to twenty-one point nine of percent of injuries, according to a handful of studies, with the glenohumeral joints, large uh, range of motion, and the high speed of hockey, the shoulder is therefore very prone to injury in ice hockey athletes. And anybody that's worked with hockey players knows this. Um, today, we're going to talk about bank out repairs. Firstly, we got to talk about the boring aspect of this. So, get out your anatomy pictures uh, of the shoulder and the surrounding structures. Bring us uh, a little bit of almost like an, an anatomy review then. Okay. Tell us what, uh, you know, the glenohumeral joint, um, what the glenoid labrum is. Go through that yeah. type of stuff. Okay. So the labrum is a fibrocartilaginous complex that attaches as a rim to the articular cartilage of the glenoid fossa. Um, its role is to deepen and increase the surface area of the glenoid so it stabilizes the shoulder joint, resists anterior and posterior movement, and assists with blocking shoulder dislocation and subluxation at the maximal ranges of motion. Um, also, like the structure and biomechanics of the labrum, the labrum is made of fibrocartilage, and it's really just a few millimeters thick and a few millimeters wide. This is variable between patients, but obviously not by that much. The labrum is mostly um, triangular or round in cross-section. The labrum also gradually becomes rounder and smaller in contrast to superiorly, where it is more triangular in shape and larger. There's three kind of, well, there's many functions, but the most important functions include increasing the contact area between the humeral head and the scapula. So um, it's, it's just trying to keep it in place. It's been a bit of a piston in that it's effective against traction stress. So, you know, you have your drunk friend yanking on your arm uh, and its job is to keep your arm in its socket as well as all the other structures around that area. It provides uh, insertion for stabilizing structures um, as a bit of like a crossroad as well. So like your biceps um, tendon is going to hang out on superiorly onto it. Um, anteriorly, so anteriorly, superior, you have your glenohumeral ligament, and then you have a middle glenohumeral ligament, and then inferiorly, you have your inferior glenohumeral ligament consisting of an anterior band, axillary pouch, and a posterior band. I almost screw that up, but you know, you catch yourself sometimes when you're rambling like I am. Um, the location of injuries into the labrum, um, so there's many types, of course. So superior labrum, you get your slap lesions are the most common, and there's several types, kind of around eight. Less frequently, um, there's Andrews lesions, but we're not going to talk too much about that. There's anterior labral tear. This is very rare. It's pure anterior tear associated with medial glenohumeral ligament tears. 
There's a posterior labrum, right? Less frequent when compared to anterior tears. It is caused by Walsh's internal impingement on the stable shoulder. You see some of this in some of the baseball guys, but we won't talk about that. There are various contributing factors, including the, you know capsule issue, issues and uh, hemorrhal retroversion and posterior inferior capsule contractures. Anyways, bank art tears are what we're, the hell we're talking about, and they're at three to six on the shoulder, where a slap is usually you know at that top uh, eleven to one. On a, on a clock perspective. So this podcast is meant to be on bank art lesions, which are anterior inferior aspects of the glenoid labral complex and are often associated with the hill sacs lesion, which we'll talk about. This injury is a common complication of anterior shoulder dislocations and or repeated anterior shoulder subluxations. The dislocation of the shoulder joint anteriorly can damage the connective tissue ring around the glenoid labrum it can also bring damage to this connection between the labrum and the capsule usually associated with poor construction of the medial glenohumeral ligament this injury uh, isn't just common in hockey players but you can see this type of thing in an overhead athlete like a baseball tennis a handball volleyball person uh, there tends to be painful tears as well but there's also instable instability which really what we're going to focus on today um and a little bit more here. I know I'm going off. Bank art lesions occur when the humerus is compressed against the labrum. So there's a detachment of the anterior inferior labrum from the underlying glenoid. So impaction fracture of the anterior inferior glenoid margin frequently occurs simultaneously. Again, to clarify, a bank art lesion is an injury of the glenoid labrum due to an anterior inferior shoulder dislocation, often located in the three to six o'clock position. If you look at this on um, a scan or a picture, this lesion is reported to be as high as 90% of the time after traumatic shoulder dislocation. So not always, but very, very frequently. And there's two types of bank art lesions. I'm going to get you to talk about differential diagnosis in a minute, Ben. Two more things, though. There's a soft bank art lesion. So the labrum tears from the glenoid and the injury involves only the soft tissue, which is most common. Then there's a bony bank art lesion. The labrum tears and a part of the bony glenoid fractures or breaks off. May lead to notable bone loss of the glenoid, which may cause more instability. In many cases of anterior dislocation, patients have a bank art lesion and uh, a reverse bank art lesion occurs in case of a posterior dislocation. Um, I know that's a lot to take in, but I think it's a good review for people. Um, even if you just simply Google uh, type of labrum tears or bank art versus slap, it gives people a lot of different context to anatomy, and then it can help you deduce the rehab from there. Differential diagnosis, Ben, uh, or diagnoses, um, there's lots, of course, but kind of feel free to, to talk about as much as you'd like. Yeah, I like how you bring up to the, um, the occurrence of posterior dislocations, like, because it is a lot more rare in comparison, right? Um, yeah. Say two to five percent of the time, I think, of all the instabilities at the shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, but biggest, I guess, most, most typical things that you'd probably try to see in clinic would be like a rotator cuff tear um, based on even um, the mechanism of injury, maybe thinking about like a fracture of the humeral head, maybe um, sure. slap lesion, as you mentioned, um, any type of impingement. I know that's kind of a buzzword. I know that's kind of all over the place right now on the internet, but it is still something that could be worth looking at. And again, mechanism, mechanism of injury is thing that you're going to try to, um, think about when it's coming to 
an anterior dislocation or a bank heart lesion, whatever we're talking about in that regard, right? Mm-hmm, totally. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a good, like, obviously, and and when you do your assessment, you'll probably be able to rule in and rule out some of these things, more so maybe not right away, but after a couple of days type of thing. And I think uh, it's a tough one with rotator cuff tears too, because uh, in the literature, even as recent as 2022, I think it was Prestigia et al. Um, the incidence of rotator cuff injuries varies from 35 to 86% of primary traumatic yes. shoulder, shoulder dislocations. So, I mean, the the occurrence of the two of them happening together is quite high. Like, and I'm sure we can yeah. say that all the time, but even in the research, it's variable, right? Like 35 to 86, that's kind of, yeah. kind of wild, right? For sure. Um, anything else you'd like to add there? No. Yeah, I think it's just like you, you, you hit it on the head, rotator cuff stuff, impingement, slap stuff, uh, a fracture of other things. Um, I'll just speak a bit about the diagnostics uh, for a second. Um, so most people will likely think MRI would be helpful, and, and they're probably right. At least currently, this is what the research is saying. For example, a study called An Algorithmic Approach to the Management of Shoulder Instability. White and colleagues note that MRI is the most useful modality for evaluating the soft tissues of the shoulder joint. In patients younger than 40, uh, an MRI or MRA is an important test to identify bank heart lesion and other labral lesions. Um, so MRI, MRI is good, but then there's MRA, right? There's differences there. The MRA has been shown to be more sensitive and specific for pan labral lesions. Um, however, by like 1% compared to uh, MRI. However, in the same study, MRI was found to be more sensitive and specific for anterior labrum lesions, which is a bit more specific for us, whereas MRA had better sensitivity and specificity for something more uh, superior, like a slap. So um, perhaps, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be very close. So uh, this isn't necessarily our choice to order these things, but it's a suggestion that MRI and MRA are probably quite close. Just one more study to compare the two. Low in 2016 aimed to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy of clinical evaluation and imaging modalities of bank heart lesions such as MRI and MRA. They feel MRA offer great utility in diagnosing bank heart lesions, but they are associated with a high degree of intra and inter-observer variability. They found that there wasn't much difference between the special tests, so anterior shoulder apprehension tests, the load and shift test, and MRI, MRA. However, I generally would say you kind of you're already thinking, especially if you had a dislocation, um, that there's something going on labral uh, and the mechanism of injury. So you clarify the issue probably with your MRI and, or MRA anyway. So I think uh, those are more of your gold standards currently, at least what we've looked at. And uh, we will, uh, we'll, people can do their own reading on that, but I'd say that's probably where you're at. Anything that you'd uh, disagree with on there, Ben? No, not at all. I think... Um... I think that's pretty good, honestly. Yep. The, um, the assessment process, um, I'll just kind of speak on that for a second here. Um, really, 
your subjectively your mechanism of injury, so the proposed mechanism of injury, usually in bank heart lesions, is an impaction force in a hyperabducted and externally rotated position. So with an underlying bank heart lesion, the patient will often experience recurrent dislocations as well. So like, have you asked the patient, ask the hockey player, how many times has this happened to you? Have you had your shoulder pop out on you or have you had feelings of instability? And they may or may not tell you. Of course, after that, you do all your other basic questions and shoulder range of motion, passive range of motion are big things. Your manual muscle testing, we're going to go over a lot of outcome measures in a bit here. So we're not going to go too deep into the assessment process currently, but you know, your functional assessment, can they do a push up? Can they do a bear crawl? Can they shoot a puck? Can they give a hit? Probably not. Um, rows, pull-ups, closed kinetic, uh, upper extremity test. So basically the test is the closed kinetic chain test or upper extremity stability test. Uh, the person is in a push-up position and for 15 seconds they're trying to tap the other piece of tape on the ground people can look this up we'll talk about it later anyways um so that's a, that's a test that to use for stability in a closed kinetic chain position then of course you're going to have your erir strength at 90 90 at your side you get your power tests like a mental shot put seated or a plyo push-up things like so with special tests with labral tests you'll see that in slaps, there are many uh, assessments you can perform, but I think we got to be careful with addressing the tests given the mechanisms. So not exactly specific, specific to a bank art uh, test, but with a slap, you know, there's a mechanism such as a compression where you fall on an outstretched hand, the humeral head gets jammed up into your shoulder. So you're going to clarify your test based on what type of lesion you have. Uh, for example, if you have a uh, a peel back mechanism. So you're dealing with an overhead athlete. Um, they are going to be provocative very likely in this, you know, 90, 90 position. So you're going to do a biceps load because again, the labrum, the biceps attaches to that slap part of the labrum. So you're going to do a test for a peel back mechanism in a thrower. Whereas if, again, this is very um, different to a bank cart for a traction type injury, you know, you're carrying your or our intoxicated friend Simon up the stairs and then you trip and he falls, but you have this major eccentric contraction. You drop the drunk ginger guy and your shoulder is toast. You have to be mindful of the mechanism of injury and then you have to test specifically in that. So if you're doing um, a compression test on a peelback athlete, that's not the most specific test for them. So anyways, there, there's widely different injuries in slaps. So this is where you have to be careful. So, um, you know, this isn't necessarily a bank art test, but it may speak to the thought process to make sure you're doing the right test. So for us with the bank art and specifically in the context, we'll be talking about the instability aspect is you're probably putting somebody in an abductor position. So you're out to the side and then you're going to do an anterior apprehension test or something to, show the instability on the anterior side of the shoulder in an, a vulnerable position or you could do just do uh, just to understand the instability of the shoulder you do a load and shift test however ultimately that mechanism of injury symptoms exes imaging and the history are all going to point you in the right direction anyway so it's like you have to try and yard this person's shoulder out of their socket or their arm out of their socket you don't you're not trying to do that um, but if you're doing an initial assessment back up your um, subjective with maybe a little bit of the, the objective uh, test there. Uh, again, though, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large conversation and you have to have the right people involved to help you clarify things. Anything that you would add? 
No, not at all. Okay. Uh, nailed it right on the head. I, I'm sure everyone listening can understand that Thomas is very well versed in this. So I'm just taking a complete backseat. <laughs> it's actually very interesting for me to listen to as much as it is for anybody else. Um, he, he explains it very well. So I'm we're just going to let him roll. I'm a fraud. Um, so the, uh, <laughs> I think the, there's going to be four papers that I wanted to talk about that are kind of important. They're annoying. Like this podcast is probably annoying for people because we're just talking a lot about the research, but um, I hope it's informative. So this first paper, I'm going to talk about four. Uh, I'm going to try and blaze through them, but um, I think there's some relevant information in here. So one paper related, and this is all related to like why are bank art repairs uh, important for a hockey clinician. And this information will help people decipher how they're going to educate their athletes long-term on if they do have a bank card repair. So I think that's the context that they may want to understand from where I'm going with this. So one paper by Saper et al. in 2017, their study called Outcomes After Arthroscopic Bank Cart Repair in Adolescent Athletes Participating in Collision and Contact Sports. So um, essentially, collision and contact sports, hockey is a collision sport, whereas a Soccer is a contact, which some would argue, sport. Um, or uh, rugby is a collision sport, whereas uh, basketball is a contact sport. So keep that in mind as we talk through this. Currently, open and arthroscopic procedures are widely used, but we're talking with this paper about arthroscopic. So there's different surgeries for uh, this type of injury, but generally arthroscopic are probably what people will see maybe a bit more of recurrent dislocation is common in this population of course particularly in young athletes where the reported rate of recurrence after arthroscopic bank art repair ranges from 5 to 31 percent they retrospectively reviewed an adolescent patient population group who underwent arthroscopic bank art repair with a minimum follow-up of two years. So that's important. The patients were 10 to 19. So you're probably not going to see too many 10-year-olds with this surgery, but you might see, you know, 17, 18, 19, especially if you're dealing with junior athletes, junior hockey players. So again, back to what we talked about earlier on hill sacks lesions, 85% of them had these. Again, a hill sacks lesion is an osseous defect of the humeral head that is typically associated with shoulder instability. Um, the incidence of these lesions in the setting of glenohumeral instability is very high and a huge percentage with recurrent anterior shoulder instability will have it. They found that also that just over 10% had dislocation events post-op and were traumatic. So educating patients, again, you're, yeah, everybody has their own way of educating patients, but you probably need to discuss with them, hey, this surgery, while it's pretty good, that's not a for sure thing, like your shoulder still needs to recover very well. You still need to rehab like crazy, especially long-term because people that get these surgeries are usually more of the hypermobile athlete as well, right? Well, not always, but sometimes. So you need to be on them about like, hey, this could be a thing that you still need to be mindful of long-term. The surgery isn't fixing you. Um, return to sport was 97.3%. However, um, a just under 80% at the same level. And therefore... 22%-ish uh, were unable to return to the same level. So um, most get back to where they were, but there's a recurrent instability impact. I'm going to just roll right on to the second uh, paper, Ben, unless you have any comments on that. So 
same idea here, a systematic review called High Rate of Return to Sport in Adolescents Following Anterior Shoulder Stabilization, a systematic review. So basically the same thing. Um, the authors are slipping my name, are slipping through my words here, but whatever. Uh, we'll, we'll cite them in a second. I'll try and as I'm uh, talking here, look them up. But basically... The purpose of this study was to perform a systematic review and meta-analysis on the outcome and return to sport following arthroscopic and open bank art repair. So a little bit different. Um, they wanted to review the current literature to report the rate of return to sport in adolescent population. Sorry, this paper was done by uh, Kasich. Um, and they evaluate the timetable of return to sport, surgeon-specific criteria, Sorry, I, I'm screwing that up a bit there, Ben. I'll I'll just um, basically I'll just give you guys the uh, the results. So there's an 81.5 percent rate of return to re-injury or pre-injury levels, um, and at about five months following surgery. So again, your five, six, seven month, eight month maybe is your timeline. Again, I think we're we're criteria driven, not necessarily um, timeline driven. Arthroscopic bankart repair results were 89.2% return to sport with uh, 80% return to pre-injury level, so similar to before. However, the main things I wanted to bring up from this systematic review is the mean incidence of recurrent instability following arthroscopic bank art repair was 19.8%, while the overall injury risk of recurring requiring a secondary revision shoulder stabilization surgery was 12.8%. That's not super high, but that's relatively high. And then I'm not sure if this is a sample thing, but this is a pretty big paper. Contact athletes, again, contact basketball, soccer, wrestling, gymnastic, martial arts, water polo, have a 31.1% and 13% rate of recurrent instability and revision surgery, respectively. Whereas collision had a 10.4 and point for incidents, recurring instability, and revision, revision surgery, respectively. I would think it's usually the other way around, but perhaps it's like, hey, these collision athletes, A, probably aren't reporting because they're maybe a different mindset and or maybe they've done a better rehab. Um, so anyways, those numbers, regardless of your collision or contact, 10 to 30-ish percent, that is relatively high. So again, uh, the clinician needs to educate people on that. Anything there, Ben, that you want to add? I think that's a, a good point you bring up about like why the collision athletes might be a little bit less, not a little bit, honestly, like 20% less. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if that's also from our point of view or also the athlete's point of view um, in the contact sports versus the collision. Right. Yep. I wonder if that's, and this is completely hypothetical, but maybe we're just, we're not really treating it to the same regard. Cause as soon as we think about like a hockey player, um, you're thinking about him getting like kind of wrecked from behind, or you're thinking about getting him hit in the boards, like being able to absorb a check. Yeah. But probably a lot of the times our main objective might be getting with a contact athlete, say basketball is just getting strength up, being able to get to the bucket and practice. Yeah. Um, thinking less about like that actual contact, right. Or maybe a fall or maybe. So I wonder if it's, if, if 
it might be something that we just need to kind of revise ourselves and start treating it almost more as we would with collision athletes as well. Yes. Uh, just to give us a little bit more, just to make sure that they're completely prepared. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's not, um, not that you're saying this at all, but it's, that's not discrediting the therapists or people that have worked with those athletes. Because maybe it's more the expectations. It's like, you need to, you need to train like you're getting into a damn car wreck as Absolutely. people should be anyways. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's more so like treat, everybody that x amount extra yes no treat them as if they're going to be going to play rugby yeah absolutely and and that's like even uh you and i do with our patients in the clinic it's like hey just because your shoulder pain is gone but you're weak as hell doesn't mean you're probably done with your rehab like you need to be for, for like a general population person I'm, I'm speaking uh you need to be strong you need to be able to tolerate things you need to be able to do all the demands of of sport and uh so anyways, that's, that's, I think where sometimes we can read papers, but you, you kind of got to clinically reason some things. Um, a third paper, I think this is important because, um, it talks about the different types of surgeries a bit. So a return to play following shoulder stabilization, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This wasn't just in adolescence either. Uh, they did the average age of this population was like third or 28. So a decent, uh, adult sport population um what they did was they performed a systematic review and meta-analysis focused on return to play following um surgery such as arthroscopic bank art repair uh, a latarge procedure and open stabilization they hypothesized that the return of rate of return to play would be similar uh, which i think they were right on um they did this in over a thousand people so it's a decent sample, uh, 500 with bank art repairs, 350 with letarges and 130 with an open bank art repair. So their findings were that bank art repair, 71%, letarge 73% and open stabilization, uh, returned to sport at the same level of play or pre-injury. Um, so I would say that uh, they said that bank art repair was a little bit ahead of um, the open stabilization, uh, as was Latarge. However, the bigger thing that we're probably thinking about is return to play at any level and post-operative uh, were not significantly different. They were a little bit different, but they weren't significantly different. And arguably what one would expect is the recurrent dislocation was significantly, which we'd expect again, uh, less with the Latarge procedure because they're really reinforcing with the bone graft. Um, so that's hopefully not what people have to deal with. I've dealt with a few of these surgeries and people tend to be very stable after, but they, it's a challenge to get them to be really mobile. But again, the surgery is meant to stiffen them up. So anyways, um, people, if they're not uh, uh, understanding of the, the different types of procedures, it's just a quick Google of like, what the hell is a Latarge? What's an open, what's a arthroscopic. Um, so uh, something to look into there. Uh, anything that you want to comment on there, Ben? One last paper, which is really related to our demographic, um, is shoulder instability, performance, and return to play in NHL players by Swindle, McCormick, Tedesco, Herndon. Uh, sorry about that name there, Herndon. Uh, and then <laughs> I pronounced that probably wrong. And then uh, Chris Ahmad, who is a guy that does a ton of surgeries in baseball players. So if you work with baseball guys, look up Chris Ahmad on YouTube. He, uh, 
does a lot of talks on shoulders, elbows, etc. So really good, uh, really good surgeon. I think he's in New York area. And then Popkin, this was done in 2020. Anyways, I'm going to read off some stats. This paper is interesting. Um, ben, you've read this too. So between 2003, 2004, and then 2007 to 2018, uh, 56 NHL players experienced 67 confirmed in-season shoulder instability events with nine recurring instability events occurring in five players. The average age of all study players was kind of 25-ish. The average number of career seasons played for these athletes was uh, like 10.7 plus or minus 4.3 uh, with a, you know a good amount of NHL games played like 500 ranging to 200. Um, this is where we're not exactly sure on the reporting of this. I'm sure um, it, it could be different, but an average of 4.19 shoulder dislocations occurred per season in the, in the NHL with an overall incidence rate of 0.020 dislocations per 1,000 games. I'm not sure if that means per team or per league. I would more so think that this would be per team, but I think they're saying this is for the entire league in those years. Um, and I would say after talking to a few people that we know in the NHL and other leagues and then myself play in the collegiate setting and yourself in the junior um, high school setting. I like this year, we've had two dislocations thus far. Um, so just one team, but anyways, they're saying 4.19, unless I'm interpreting this differently. Um, in terms of player position, there was no differences. Um, 98% or over 98% were able to return to play after missing games. To my understanding, there was nothing reported on goalies and not to say this doesn't happen, but so like this was a forwards and D man, uh, D lady, but we, we think this would be quite rare if this was in a goalie, but again, those goalies are hypermobile. They have to reach behind themselves a lot. They have to fling around. So it's possible, but I don't think there's anything reported on goalies. Ultimately 50% of players who suffered a season injury, uh, season ending injury underwent the surgery operative treatment was performed on uh all the um all the surgery athletes obviously but there was reported to be zero reoccurrence of um of injury which again um it's possible um and then of the 28 players and 32 injuries that were treated non-operatively four to four 14.3 suffered recurrent dis location which makes more sense with 10 percent of players and 9.4 percent of injuries recurring within the same season all recurrences within the same season were season ending with 33 percent of season injury ending injuries required surgery so uh players with re recurrences missed of course more games um within the study cohort no reoccurrences were seen after post-operative treatment as well again this is different to what we've just displayed with all the other studies. But um, again, that could speak volumes to the rehab by the NHL teams and the NHL players. Um, there was a nice point in this article by Donaldson that they included that shoulder injuries had the highest mean cost per injury in the NHL leading to one of the largest financial burdens for players unable to do to play. So of course, because these rehabs are long, right? Like if you um, miss five, months of the season that's that's a good percentage of your league uh, of your league game so the guys are gonna uh, lose out on a lot of cash or 
the owner would lose out a lot of cash of this player not playing or whatever. However, the LTI works and the insurance, I don't know. Finally, they noted, uh, currently, I think this is the biggest takeaway, there's no consensus on treatment and treatment timing and rehab for shoulder instability injuries in hockey. Given the physical and financial impact of this type of injury on professional players, we feel that there is a need to work toward development of a treatment protocol for shoulder instability in hockey. So that's an interesting study. People can go look it up and, and make their um, own inferences on it. Um, I think something else that was kind of interesting that they talked about too was the non-op players. Yeah. Um, there was 14%, 14.3% that suffered recurrence shoulder dislocations, and then about a third of those ended up going in requiring, requiring surgery anyway. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go into a little bit further stats. I don't love the p-values of that, and I know yeah. I might have to look into it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of so stats. I won't go into that too, too much. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought that was kind of interesting to note um big time i think it's a it's a useful paper for paper for people to read it gives more again specific context to hockey outcome measures ben in this uh context uh what would you uh like or what would you yeah a couple that you would use what would you share yeah um a couple like a couple ones like staying away from objective measures and more so thinking about um subjective questionnaires stuff like that the apprehension is so big with this injury. So psychological readiness to return to sports scale, that's like almost, it's mandatory pretty yep. well, right? Yep, yep. Um, I would always do the vast throughout, just as you would with any, like most people. Um, and another one that I've used and that I find kind of interesting is the Oxford Shoulder Instability Score. Yep. Um, and I've, I've given it kind of every two to three weeks in the beginning and then longer term kind of try to continue with that. Yeah. Um, found it was very helpful and psychological readiness to, to return to sport. I also would give, I would do immediately just to have almost like a baseline sure. as soon as I saw them. And then I would try to follow up once a month with that one. Nice. Um, until it got a little bit closer and then we'd start doing it probably weekly. Sweet. Um, uh, yeah. Any you'd like that. I think that that's great. The, there's usually what I try to do is you're going to have obviously your basics of your, which we'll talk about your range of motion, your strength, your power, um, your closed kinetic chain, open kinetic chain stuff. But a questionnaire is vital, like you said, because how else are you going to quantify psychology of things? The one that I like to use, because um, I also use the Western uh ontario shoulder instability index or the oxford one but the isis uh one not the jihadist group uh but the outcome measure um the instability severe index score uh and what that is it's actually perfect for our context it was designed to predict the risk of reoccurrence after arthroscopic instability shoulder surgery um and to to better predict those who benefit from an open or bone transfer operation this is also designed for anterior inferior shoulder instability so that's basically bank art lesion um so i would use that i'd look into isis um the outcome measure uh for that for people um and then what we're going to talk about in great detail is um you know for fucking god if anyone if there's anyone listening to us at this point in this podcast if you have someone return to sport from a shoulder injury you have to look at this paper, and it's Kevin Wilkes paper, uh, Mike Bagwell, George Davies, and Chris Ar- Arigio, uh from 2020 called Return to Sport 
participation criteria following shoulder injury, a clinical commentary. Um, and you're not going to have all the resources to do all of these tests, but just read the damn paper. It's going to give you a nice um, framework to go off of. We'll post some of the pictures that are in there, but God, just read the, read the damn thing. It's really helpful. Um, I've used this over the last handful of years in some, some of my return to play perspectives with hockey and baseball guys. And I'll just talk about a few of the tables in there. Um, so again, somebody's going to go read this. It's free online. You don't have to pay for it. Like some of these scammers, um, of, uh, journals that I, I hate, but anyways, you don't have to go on a sci hub to get this. You can just look it up. So, uh, look up Ken Wilkes paper. The, the first table in it is basically, they call it three P program performance, practice, and play P one performance training P two practice participation P three play, but return to partition participation criteria one is appropriate time from injury obviously uh two successful completion of a formal rehab plan three full sport specific non-painful roam um excellent stability with no pain during special tests surgery uh obviously timeline strength which meets specific participation criteria satisfactory scores on functional tests sport specific testing acceptable uh, patient reported subjective score, and then patient has no kinesiophobia, like you just talked about, assess with something, but they say assess with the Tampa kinesiophobia index. So that's one table. Table two, again, I'm going to just keep ranting here for a second. Table two, criteria to begin participation in sport or practice. I can't say participation today. I don't know. I think I'm just talking too much. Um, Western Ontario shoulder index score of over 90 i've seen that in a few athletes and i think it actually correlates quite well with their readiness full non-painful passive range of motion i think i'm cutting out a bit but i'm gonna work through this okay we're good satisfactory clinical examination without positive findings or apprehension this is probably more for the baseball players or uh non-contact but ball drop test 90 percent involved to uninvolved Push-up test, ability to perform more repetitions in second testing bout. Closed kinetic chain upper extremity stability test. I talked about this earlier. Uh, greater than 21 repetitions. Bench press, greater than 75% of pre-injury. One rep max without substitution. Unilateral pull assessment, unilateral push, and then isokinetic tests. Um, there's, some, there's some other things in there too. Table three, again, I'm almost done here. Um, clearance criteria for return to sport, again, uh, the Western Ontario shoulder index, the range of motion, the ball drop test, the, the push-ups, the uh, closed kinetic chain upper upper extremity stability test, but it's more repetitions, bench press at like 100%, pulling and pushing 100%, isokinetics at a different uh, ratio and speed. So if you're in a – I don't think we have too many people with the capacity to test this, but if you have that option, that would be wonderful to use. So get in touch with your local university maybe. And then they also have another table, which I'm not going to talk about, but they basically talk about a upper extremity list for overhead athletes with micro trauma versus a macro trauma. So there's different um, requirements or different uh, testing subgroups that you can use to help decipher um, how to delineate your rehab. Anything that you'd like to add there, Ben? No, I think that was a really good breakdown and at the end of the day, I think it's really good to just like, even if you like, t 
take that down to its bare essentials pretty much once you get to table three think of how high your strength and conditioning is at that point right like yeah big time um so that's probably the if there's one thing people take away from today it's read that paper um there's two other ones that i'll just quickly allude to before we carry on to treatment but that's um there is the 2022 burn consensus statement on shoulder injury prevention rehab and return to sport for athletes at all participation levels that's a great paper that has a, a bunch of um good resources and just a, another good read that gives you some um ideas and uh things to go off of the one other test that i would probably add other than people looking through that paper again is the ash test um this has been brought forward by your your other buddy ben uh ben ashworth who is a great resource and clinician so the ash test is the athletic shoulder test it's used to assess and monitor the shoulder isometric strength of athletes during recovery it evaluates somebody's like neuromuscular activity the shoulder girdle girdle in contact sports those that include overhead actions but i think it's relevant to us basically people can look up specifics but Essentially, you lay down on your stomach, head supported a bit. You can hammer down onto a force plate at a YTI position for three seconds as hard as you can. If you don't have a force plate, you can do the modified version with a handheld dynamometer. And I've found, uh, like our clinic, we have a force dynamometer, but it's not necessarily a handheld dynamometer. I just use a um, a um, weigh scale, so you can kind of just push down um, on that, and that's a way to kind of modify it. Anyways, I think some other basics for people, if you don't have, if you don't want to look up anything now, uh, Ben will lead you off with some things, but I want to just say that um, classic handheld dynamometry with your strength tests, your grip strength, your um, closed kinetic chain stuff, as well as just going through a thorough rehab plan. If you have, if you gradually just go through some basics, you'll probably do quite a good job, but this stuff is upper level, which you should be trying to get to. Anything that you'd add, Ben? Um, if you want to find out more about Ben Ashworth's test, he, uh, he did a really good interview. Uh, he was on Mike Arnold's, um, the sports physical therapy podcast. So it'd be really good to listen to that as well. Right. Yep. And at big time. And, uh, he has a couple of, uh, uh, clinics or seminars and, uh, courses that he has. So I think online and in person. Um, so we'll, maybe uh, we can uh, share some of his stuff on our uh, page as well. Um, treatment uh ben anything that uh you'd like like to uh share i think it's just leading off with treatment because it's going to be super variable no matter what anyone says even a research kind of says that okay so there's a a paper by derfrota um and it's kind of talking about um mainly just protocols yeah and just like what are like what's everyone saying what is there any like consensus is there any and really they're there isn't much it's super variable yeah um, like highly variable so it's more or less the, the um the takeaway from the paper was follow the surgeon is the big <laughs> thing yeah. and whatever the surgeon wants That's really have in capital that surgery. makes complete sense yeah um listen to the surgeon there's high variability with all protocols out there and if you want to use a protocol, maybe look for a consensus consensus paper that's published. Um, one that I've used is the American Society of Shoulder and Elbow, Elbow Therapists Consensus Rehabilitation Guideline um, for arthroscopic anterior capsule labral 
repair of the shoulder. Nice. It's a super wordy title. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it does work really well. I'll attach the link um, into our comment section or whatever the hell that's called. Yeah. Yeah. Zero people commenting. I, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I wrote down for treatment too, is I just having capital letters, follow your surgeon's protocol, even though a lot of the time you may disagree on things like, especially as time rolls on, but it, in the early stages, it's like, Hey, just don't screw this up. Just allow them. There's no rush, especially in the people that we're working with, like college, junior, uh, kids, like pro sport different, they're getting paid. But for us in our context, like, I don't know, we're not, we're not rushing anything. We're just trying to do a good job. Um, of course, then, almost 99.9% of the time going to be a period of rest for the shoulder with almost every protocol or every surgeon that you, yeah. Like, like they might, some people might say five days. Some people might say a yeah. couple of weeks. I don't know if we would disagree on the, the longer portion of that, no. but anyways, um, and then of course, Whatever like the surgeon says, yeah. And, and, uh, the treatment, of course, you're going to do all of the classic stuff. You're going to do some soft tissue work. You're going to do passive range of motion. You're going to do active assisted range of motion for a period of time. Again, suggesting what your protocol says. Then you'll do NMES. You're strengthening. You start with isometrics, isotonics. You get more heavy with things. You get them gradually getting more explosive. You're going to challenge the hell out of their stability of, of things, right? So it's not just like, hey, we need their strength back. They need to be majorly focused on stability so you're you're gonna be chucking them off benches they're gonna be throwing things they're gonna be catching things they're gonna be wrestling grappling with people uh a lot of the rehab sometimes in this context could look a lot like a a wrestler's warm-up or a a wrestling match in a certain context so you're you're training the hell out of the stability of these people um long term and uh anything like specific exercises ben i i think you might like you you would probably include some weight waiter carries some you know uh like tons of heavy grip work of course you're doing tons of cuff stuff people can go hog wild with anything they want on this but just get them hell as strong and as stable as possible it's really the, the thing Pick your favorites. Every physio has their favorites. Yeah. Use them. And it's easy for you to monitor them then too because you've used them. You know what people are normally like with it. Yeah. Um, on an individualistic basis. But like it's still, you know what I mean, right? Like everyone has their typical ones they go to. Yeah. Um, in terms of return to skate and shoot, I know you have a case study that you want to bring up. Um, yeah. But a couple points I wanted to bring up. Like I, when it comes to that point, obviously you're, you're going to have a little bit. If, if you're already thinking about returning to skating and shooting, you're going to have a little bit of stability there already. Like you're, you're, you've brought some confidence onto your patient. Um, so I always like to ensure that not performance stability exercises in the vulnerable aspect at that point as well, to make them a little bit more confident with any of those activities. Doesn't yeah. matter if it's like weighted ball work, um, definitely doing like D2 pattern, um, with pace and with control, like, uh, and these are just like minor things that I do. There's a, there's plenty there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of return to skate, though, like I wanted to mention to you, like it's the same as any other injury. Make sure they're going to be safe and make sure that your area is going to be okay. Yeah. So I think even if you get them back on the ice and know that if they fall, like obviously there's yeah. a risk, but yeah. if they fall, they should be a little bit stable. Yeah. Um, but even just get them on the ice and get comfortable again, just push some pucks around, yep. participate in practice or whatever you might have. Mm-hmm. In terms of shooting, like the only thing like I was going to bring up and same type of idea, keep it safe in the beginning, even if it's just playing keep up off ice. Yeah. Like just have a stick in your hand again. Right. Yep. Again, it comes back to confidence too. Um, yeah. Another uh, like, yeah, the, the exercise stuff could be, 
you can go hog wild with it for sure. The, the, the case study that I would have is really just, I've, I've dealt with a handful of um, athletes in this context playing, going back to hockey. And the one uh, previously that I've had um, NCAA did one guy had his surgery. The surgeon was again, following the surgeon's protocol, the surgeon's suggestions. Um, the surgeon just wanted a graduated uh, aspect. So at, 12 weeks, it was a discussion of like, where is, where is he at criteria wise? What's his strength? Like, has he, has he practiced falling onto his hands? Has he thrown things? Is his uh, bench press coming along? Is his stability coming along? Um, so it's not just timeline, but it was around the 12, 13 weeks they started skating. But again, that's driven by the um, criteria. So it's not just timeline, but it was around then. And then return to shoot, it started with, okay, he's skating. Can he stick handle? Is he doing well with that? Can he do that for a couple of days, maybe three to five days? Then can he pass? Can he pass? Well, yes. Okay. And then that's probably a week or two. Then wristers came and then uh, snapshots came and then slap shots came. So by, you know, the 18 to 20 week mark plus his criteria, more importantly, uh, he was back to doing a lot of these activities. Then this was a, this was kind of like middle of July. So like the games weren't starting for him until October. So like then he had several, well, several couple months before he even had to truly be able to take contact. So that was the whole other discussions. Like, and then you just gradually get into it. And that's where you have great discussions with your interdisciplinary team, with your coach, your skills coach, your, um, your athlete telling them, Hey, don't, don't be putting yourself in a non-contact jersey until the surgeon has told you uh, you're allowed to do that. And then you can feel free to get ran from behind. It doesn't matter because like, you're strong and stable and you've done the work. Um, so it comes back to the criteria, a little bit of timeline, surgeon's protocol, um, and uh, being data-driven. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, anything else to add? I think that's – obviously so much information for people, which is really good. Um, I think I, I've come away from this already a little bit more prepared. I feel just listening to you. So that's good. Well, I, I think it's just like, um, if it, if it just, if you just take some people, just take a bit of time to research this, um, this injury, because if you have a good understanding of the unstable shoulder and you even just deal with a couple people with this, you, then you're going to feel really, confident in your ability to rehab upper extremity things any shoulder like if you can get a painful unstable shoulder back to functioning really well you've been through a nice process that allows you to deduce and uh regress appropriately for other people after so just do a bit of research read that kevin wilk paper and then read a bit about um labrums and and bank art repairs and i think people will um will be uh, on the right track not to say that i know much but i think it's it's a start um and we're always trying to learn i am intrigued to see long-term uh progressions of some of these studies and um i think the devil is a bit in the details of the education to the athlete long term keep strengthening keep doing this stuff just because you're back to sport and you feel strong and stable doesn't mean you're uh, you're good you know the recurrence rates are still way too high in my on our liking you know but yeah that, that's no, really that's all i have yeah uh, well, uh, obviously we have a lot of information and a lot of papers that we can attach in this. So, um, our 
bio or whatever the hell it's called for this yeah, uh, episode <laughs> will be a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. We'll try and get this out. Um, but that's okay. Uh, like, just check it all out. Um, like I said, Ben Ashworth, when he was on my Chronos podcast, give yeah. that a listen. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, no, nothing. Time, time to time to go work on my own shoulder. 